Uh, kia ora, I'm Alex Perrottet from RNZ, talking today about race and identity. Uh, in this edition of Awkward Conversations, I'm discussing colonisation and the historical doctrine of discovery with Dale Takitimu and Glenis Philip-Barbara. Uh, we're gathered in front of an audience at the distinctive Smash Palace here in Gisborne and speaking as the Tuia Tufifti Kituranga commemoration of the first contact between Māori and Pakia draws to a close. To introduce... Uh, our two guests, Dale Takitimu is of Ngāti Porau, Te Whanua Apanui and Te Aitanga Ahauiti and is the head of school at Toihokura School of Māori Arts here in Gisborne. She's also an Indigenous rights and environmental lawyer who's presented on environment and Indigenous people's issues at fora both locally as well as internationally. She's a graduate of the University of Auckland and holds a Masters of Environmental Protection. Also graduated from the United Nations World Intellectual Property Academy in Geneva. She's presented at the Māori Legal Forum, Environmental Law Forum and the International Indian Treaty Council and at the United Nations Treaty Expert Seminar. She's also a trustee of the Aotearoa Indigenous Rights Trust and champions the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and the Draft Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth. Please put your hands together for Dale Takatimu. <laughs> also joining us is Glenis Philip-Barbara. She's of Ngāti Poro and Ngāti Uhepohatu descent and connects to a range of marae on the east coast of the North Island. She's the General Manager of Te Ha Trust. She's formerly the Chief Executive of the Māori Language Commission. Uh, where she established a focus on community-led language regeneration, a research centre for language revitalisation and strengthen the overall business performance of the organisation. As the Associate Deputy Chief Executive for Child, Youth and Family, she was responsible for leading innovation, change and corporate support services. And she's held key roles in tertiary education spanning teaching, research, senior leadership and governance. And her primary strength is in strategy and co-design, in particular, the alignment of organisational intent with the needs and aspirations of the peoples it serves. Please put your hands together for Glenis. <laughs> this is an awkward conversation in the best sense possible because we're talking about colonisation and we're talking about the doctrine of discovery. These things can often be seen as things in the past and as we celebrate Tuya 250, we are led to, to, to think that, well, you know, there were, there were certain racial problems around 250 years ago. But as Glenis might tell us in terms of her upbringing and even things that she faces today, uh, those issues are very, very much still at the core of your everyday experience. Do you want to tell us a little bit, perhaps starting with your experience as a student? Did you hear that murmur go through the room when you said we've just finished celebrating to year 250? <laughs> it was clearly audible to me and so that's really an indicator for all of us um, that we are still living in contested times and we are still coming to terms with well, basically the, the colonial structure of New Zealand and what it means for us as the people living here at this time. Um, most people don't understand what racism is. Um, they don't understand its history, they don't understand its origin and, and to draw a connection from history to our everyday experience is something that's quite unique to people of colour worldwide because it is a daily experience. Um, experiencing the racism of this country is, is something that we all grow up in. Um, but it comes from a really ancient idea, and it's a very simple ancient idea, and it is this mad idea that to be white is somehow to be better than everybody else in the world. I mean, and when you examine that, when you kind of take it apart and, and examine it, it's just odd. 
Isn't it the strangest thing that somehow the hue of your skin makes you better than other human beings? I mean, and it's not that it's just a mad idea, but it's a mad idea that's established itself um, so completely in the world that we don't even stop to question it. We don't even stop um, to ask ourselves why it's so prevalent and so commonplace. And we don't even talk about it anymore. So for me, um, growing up, I had a really interesting name. Um, Glennis Philip was my name. And so my physical persona has never matched my name, a bit like Meredith Maddock. Um, you know, when you have a name like that um, and you turn up to school, um, you are not the person uh, who the teacher is expecting to see. So for me, um, going to school, totally educated in New Zealand, um, daughter of a military family, we moved every two years on average. And so I did pretty well at school, I was a bit of a nerd, still am really. Um, loved school, loved learning, did really well. So always had a great school report. Um, and so it was usually, because in those you know crusty old days, we were streamed, right? Top class, middle class, lower classes. And so when I turned up to school with my excellent report... I was always streamed into the top class. And without exception, and I went to 13 schools in this country, the day that I turned up to school, I was always readjusted. I was always taken out of the top class and put into the lower classes with all the other Māori-looking children. Now, this happened all over the country, in military schools and in public schools. This was my lived experience. Every school, 13 schools, this is New Zealand through the 70s and the 80s. And that's something that my Pahia father had to deal with on my behalf because, of course, um, he was seen as having, and from a community perspective, he was seen as having the most authoritative voice on these matters, which is ironic, don't you think? So he had to turn up and defend my right to take my place in the top stream class on the basis of my achievements, academic achievements, and fight tooth and nail to have me there. I was often tolerated in those spaces, but I had to work really hard to hold my place for no other reason than how I appear physically, which is preposterous, right? But if that happened to me, I can guarantee you that it's happened to many, many children in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and continues to happen. And you still experience similar things going about your day-to-day life now, today, 2019? Daily, on the daily, in lots of ways. I mean, I had a huge conversation with my son um, the other night, actually. He's a... um, he makes apps. He's one of those IT people. I said to him, sweetheart, could you make me a tracker, a racism tracker, so that every time me or anybody experiences racism, we can somehow record it, you know, like geocache that stuff, right? Understand where it's happening, how, se- how severely it's affected us, um, what the kind of dem- demographic profile is of the person actually, you know, racially profiling us. I'd really like to track this stuff and understand its prevalence because it's, it's hidden, because it happens to me. It doesn't tend to happen to people who aren't who don't look like me, um, it's not a common conversation. And, of course, when you raise it um, at work, 
or even at home sometimes, it does make people so awkward that mm. they'll quickly move to shut you down or minimise what you've experienced or try and find a, a reason why that ni nice person really didn't mean to offend you. It's not just offensive, it's preposterous. And tell us something practical in the sense of how, like at school, you were always fighting to be in the top class where you belonged. Where are you still fighting to be at the moment? Um, I'm not really fighting to be anywhere. Uh, but, but what I do find is that when I uh, turn up places as a Māori woman, um, for example, um, at, a, at a public sector meeting of chief executives, there's an assumption that I'm in the wrong room conveyed to me uh, when I arrive or as an academic staff member sitting in my office working late, as I am prone to, to do. Um, you know, th there's a security man who turns up and says, look, um, you know, we're really not allowed to touch the computers. You know, you'll get in trouble. So his assumption was I was the cleaner, not the academic staff member sitting in my office doing work late at night. I mean, there are so many examples of this, you know, even at local council here. Um, turning up to pick up my recycling bin and being asked by the staff member, uh, are you sure you own the house? Because if you're renting that house, you don't actually have a right to come and pick up a recycling bin. I mean, these are tiny little incidences that crop up every day in so many different ways in one's lifetime. I mean, the cumulative effect of it, you know, it's just damn right depressing, isn't it? So to have a strong sense of self, to work really hard to understand who I am culturally um, from, from both sides of my whakapapa, Pākehā and Māori, is really core. Because when you know and understand who you are and where you belong, you can actually deal with all these what they call microaggressions, racist microaggressions that occur every day, everywhere. And so many people, I guess you're saying, are committing them, <coughs> being blind to it and not understanding. And I guess when called out, there's, a, there's an extreme defensiveness deployed. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, well, they say that it's a kind of natural response, this defensive trigger that happens for people. But we have to ask ourselves as a nation, what are our assumptions? What are the assumptions that we hold about people of colour, Māori people in particular? What are the, and how are these assumptions fed? Um, where does our information and knowledge come from? If we're fed on a constant diet of negative media, what else are we going to know? about Māori people, if we hadn't had the opportunity or not taken the opportunity to get to know people who are different to ourselves, if we live in our tidy little echo chambers filled with people who look like us, I mean, what are we ever going to learn about people who are different? So I think it's time as a nation to actually begin to really challenge ourselves around our assumptions about others, and particularly assumptions about people who are of colour, people who are brown like me people who have been here for a very, very long time and who do all kinds of interesting things and live interesting lives, but for, you know, the lazy ingestion of, you know, sound bites in the media, we've allowed ourselves, I think, many of us, to establish this assumption, this basis of assumption about the content of people's character with no evidence to sustain or support it. And I find that hugely disappointing. Dale, we've just heard a, I guess what Glennis would say, a tip of the iceberg run through what colonisation looks like and feels like today. Where does it come from? Where does that attitude originate? Um, before I tackle that, I think it's important in our discussions also to remember 
that it's really tempting to academicize the discussion and intellectualize it and take away the human side of it. This everyday racism and what we call in New Zealand now in mainstream media casual racism, the microaggressions, the death by a thousand cuts is literally killing our people. Māori men in this country have the highest suicide rate of any other cohort in the population. The East Coast here, our children are killing themselves because they do not have belief in their own worth. And that is because there's a massive systemic pressure that is then being absorbed and dispersed throughout society in a really casual way that is really dangerous. It's everywhere. I get up and go to work and drive down Stout Street and then hit Balance Street. These, this is the cultural colonial landscape opposed on top of my ancestral land. Carries the names of the people who murdered us. And every day it is reinforced through policy, through our education system, through mainstream media and the colonial fictions coming out of Wellington. And it's not like they have no impact. They're having a massive impact on our society every day. So where does it come from? It comes from a multitude of places, but as, as Glennis has said, uh, right at its genesis is this um, racial supremacy argument that, um, uh, that white is right and, and white is somehow closer to civilization and, and, in fact, in its earlier theories, closer to heaven, closer to God. And so you had this the doctrine of discovery. It, its full name is actually the doctrine of Christian discovery, and it's important to remember that because that's where it came from, came out of uh, the papal bulls issued by the Pope in the 15th century, uh, which basically divided up the world and said, you get the right to conquer this half, and this other crowd get the right to conquer that half, and, and Christianize and civilize the world and those papal bulls were essentially writing instructions for the new explorers into the, what they called the new world. For us, it was, in fact, a very ancient world at that point. Um, and, and as they got these writing instructions to go out and plant these flags and claim dominion and the right of their Christian monarch, uh, they were given the instructions that they were allowed to kill, they were allowed to convert, they were allowed to assume territory, they were allowed to appropriate all of our resources. They then became the foundation for the international financial system we have today. They then became the backdrop for the systems of government and commonwealth and the idea of the commonwealth that now exists today. So where did it come from? Our entire system in New Zealand with Parliament sitting uh, down in Wellington and it's um, not an accident that it's shaped in the shape of a beehive because bees' uh, primary responsibility is to protect the Queen um, and that's what the beehive does. <laughs> and it protects the colonial fictions that say we have the right to come here in, a, in what was already an occupied territory and we have the right to impose our own systems of government over top of the people already there. Now, the doctrine of discovery should really only stack up if the lands were undiscovered. So it was problematic when they showed up in this part of the world and there was a lot of us running around. And so they said, well, no, no, that's okay, because we'll just import some other theorists that help us back up the fiction. 
and and will import theories. And in fact, they they misinterpreted Darwin's theory, but uh, will import theories that Darwin ha ha has made popular, and will say that they're actually of a lower subspecies. Their darker skin is closer to the the evolutionary theory about monkeys and apes and that sort of thing. So they're, they're further down the pegging order of civilization. The, the, the whiter-skinned people have evolved further, therefore they should take the power positions and they should rule the nations. That then happened. And off the back of that, they then set up the League of Nations, what then evolved into the United Nations, which is essentially a, a colonial country club where they all go and swap stories about how to keep these territories under their exclusive control. And the irony of that is what Glennis was talking about in regards to uh, this idea that there would be a superior race or set of races, and, and essentially it was the Christian world that was, uh, was propelling that out of, out of Europe. Uh, they went to war against Hitler for that very idea um, when, when, when he postured it. And then in the aftermath of the, the Second World War, they very hurriedly, the victors of that, set up the United Nations and spread out and did exactly the same thing, but in a softer, more civilised way. <laughs> but I can tell you, if it's your people that have had your land and your worth and your identity stripped from you, it doesn't matter that much who's holding the knife, and it doesn't matter that much if it was gentle or violent. But we have a myth perpetuated in New Zealand that our colonisation here was reasonable, it was largely non-violent, um, and through that myth then is carried this assumption that it was almost consensual. Um, that and is, where do we, in fact, where do we not see the case. Remnants, or more than remnants, of that attitude. Um, again, everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> I was taught out of an old social studies textbook that, in fact, was published the year before I was born. And it had a paragraph about the Treaty of Waitangi, and it started off. And this was what we were presented as the Crown Orthodox theory. And to claim orthodoxy is to claim that that's the right and that's the normal. So the Crown Orthodox theory of the Treaty of Waitangi is that it is a treaty of session, full stop. And then we had this big class discussion about what does session mean. It means that you gave it away. You gave it up. Power has never in the history of humanity been given away voluntarily. And I can tell you this. I'm from an iwi... Um, called Te Whanau Apuni, on a good day. Um, <laughs> but, but we often had skirmishes amongst ourselves, amongst relations, and we protected our tribal territory with our lives back in those days, right? Where our borders it was important. And the territorial integrity of our then indigenous nations was fiercely protected. But somehow... The orthodox theory of the Treaty of Waitangi that's taught in this country in schools is trying to have me believe that on the 5th of February, 1840, having defended for hundreds of years their exclusive occupation of my tribal territory, my ancestors woke up and thought, let's head over to Waitangi and let's sign away the mana that we have protected with our lives since time immemorial or since we arrived here from Hawaii for those that came on waka, 
And all of a sudden, we just uh, absolved ourselves of that responsibility. Oh, we don't want that anymore. We don't want our self-determination. We don't want our own territorial integrity. We don't want to exist like that anymore. We'll just sign it away. That's what that orthodox theory is trying to convince me is the truth. And that does not stack up. It doesn't stack up. And what it's also asking me to believe is that my ancestors were stupid. And I refuse to believe that. And so to believe in this myth that on the 6th of February, 1840 in Waitangi, something so monumental happened to every single chief of every single hapu that they would voluntarily just give away their nationhood. It's never happened in the history of humanity, but they expect me to believe that happened to my people. The interesting thing about that is it doesn't stack up with a European idea of sovereignty. So the treatises of government that were written by John Locke say, and, and the, the heading of, of the first chapter, is sovereignty cannot be ceded. What that's now been interpreted to mean is Pākehā sovereignty cannot be ceded, but all the brown people around the world, yours can be. Mm. How can that be? That just can't be right. As Glenna says, it just doesn't stack up. Um, and so there's this unequal treatment right from the theories that underpin what then became the systems of government in this country. And so when you ask where it is, it's everywhere. And so it loops back to race, but what Dale's talking about is colonisation, the supplanting of one people's life, way of living, by another. And the idea that it was a gift given, this, this opportunity to adopt the habits and usages of the British was widely written about um, during, that, during that period of, of settlement. I mean, it was a deeply unsettling process. If, if anybody studied anything about New Zealand history and you review all of the conflict that took place, as Dale described, Māori people defending their territories with their lives, I mean, there was nothing given away over that period. It was a bloody, bloody time. But then there's this mythology, right, that continues to be perpetuated through mainstream education. And, and, and let's face it, we've all, we've all been educated through that mainstream education system. So now we're seeing generations of children coming through that system with this really messed up idea of who they are as people, where they've come from, and the actions of their ancestors. And if you haven't had the opportunity to do your own independent research and look into these things deeply. Currently, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, there's no opportunity to learn. So this idea that racism is invisible, just this invisible force that nobody talks about, the idea that to become British was the most incredible gift that could be given to the world, I mean, it's, it's madness when we talk about it now, but it's so powerfully held. I'm really hoping that as a nation, we've arrived at a point in our own development we were ready to really look critically at these things and ask ourselves questions. I'm Alex Perite for RNZ with an edition of Awkward Conversations about Race and Identity. Today I'm discussing colonisation and the historical doctrine of discovery with Dale Takitimu and Glenis Philip Barbara. We're gathered in front of an audience in the distinctive Smash Palace bar and music venue in Gisborne. 
and speaking as the Tuia 250 Kituranga commemoration of the first contact between Māori and Pakia draws to a close. You know, over the last 250 years, I think Indigenous people have broadly told the truth about their experience of colonisation. As a society, though, we've been unwilling to listen. In fact, it's been worse than that. We've deliberately switched off our ears when it comes to the Indigenous experience based on this idea that it's not valid or that there's no value in it. I mean, if I had a buck for every person who told me that, you know, written history is a far more reliable record than oral history, I mean, where does written history come from? Right? I mean, we interview people. You know, the, the research practice values the primary source over a written source, first and foremost. So there are all these inequities and, you know, anomalies that don't make sense. But the upshot of it is, is that as New Zealanders, we're still struggling to come to a place where we actually respect the humanity of people based on our humanity, full stop. And ridding ourselves of this kind of racist mist that sits everywhere around us. These assumptions that we've established around whose word is valuable, whose leadership we trust, whose systems and processes we'll lean into. Um, these are all conversations that, are, that have been live for a long time. What's changing is that with the advent of broadly accessible information and knowledge, you know, people are actually doing their own research. They're not kind of stuck in a mode where they only get what they're given at school. People are curious. People are courageous. People are talking. And it's high time. Quite often we hear, but, but that's not what we were taught at school, or how's it my fault, or isn't that all in, in the past, and why can't you just let it go? Um, well, because it's raining down on me and my children each and every day. That's why I find it hard to let it go. Um, but also, I, I think there is this uh, almost tacit suggestion that it should be done comfortably for the mainstream that it should be served up on a platter in a way that the mainstream don't get too upset about it. And we'll just do it at your pace. And I find that hugely problematic because nobody stopped and asked us if the imposition of foreign structures upon our people could happen at a pace we were comfortable with. Colonisation in this country happened radically fast in terms of a global um, picture. And within two or three generations, we had our law completely changed in this country in the sense that our language was outlawed, our education systems were outlawed. The keepers of our narrative, so our poets and our writers and our artists and our tohunga, were criminalised. And they were the holders of the glue of, our fabric, of the fabric of our society together. That's not by accident or just by coincidence. There's a design architecture to colonisation, particularly how it's rolled out by the British um, uh, throughout Canada, throughout America, through New Zealand, Australia, through parts of Africa, that is really similar, and the building blocks are very similar um, in each of those histories. And there were deliberate attacks on the psyche of the people, not just on the territory and the, and the land tenure system and those sorts of things. We've definitely seen that and we've researched that up the hill. But the, the colonization's architecture also includes 
policy and practices that attacked the very structure of our societies, our family units, the roles of each of our um, people within our traditional governmental systems, um, and then turned around and denied any of those things ever existed, which is um, not just problematic for us, it's problematic also for the government of this country, sitting in Wellington, who will say on one hand, here's your orthodox theory of the treaty, and it was a treaty of session, but it's not legally binding. And then on the other hand, we'll say it's the Treaty of Waitangi that gives us the legitimate right to set up governmental institutions in this country because it's ceded to us your sovereignty. Now, it's one or the other. Does it have legal merit or does it not? You can't cherry-pick those things, um, but very much that is what's happened throughout history. And I think there needs to be and there will be some reckoning of that truth as we um, mature, as, a, um, as, as these islands that we occupy here in the Pacific and also throughout the globe, um, people are calling things out um, on a more regular basis and that's getting some pushback and that does create some tensions and there will be some awkward growth through that. And I think that uh, you're, we should be kind to each other while we're doing sure. it, I think. Um, you're advocating for more than that, though. You, you were saying that colonisation had happened so quickly and without any regard to the Indigenous people. I guess your idea of decolonisation is not just a bottom-up grassroots movement, but some sort of radical changing of those structures. I think there needs to be an acknowledgement that it all works as a system and there's been a deliberateness about it and there's a design about it and you need to understand that before you can have any hope of unpacking it. Right. You can't just gift wrap up another system and try and resell it back to us with some core cool fi painted on it. It's not going to work. We understand that once you unpackage that, it still doesn't look like us. But the other thing is we've moved from 1840, and we are now in 2019, and we're a culture that's been violently interrupted by colonisation, uh, and we've had our uh, tribal governmental structures impacted on in a way that you can't just flick the switch off now. It doesn't work like that. So we've got to now have the courage to take the restoration journey together. We com- and and I, I, I may be at odds with others of my... Um, peers in this, but um, I come from an iwi that greatly values the sacredness of the Treaty of Waitangi and and the promise and the hope of peaceful coexistence in there, and I think we need to rise to the challenge of it. I'm not one of the people that thinks we'll just um, smash everything down and ship people off and, and, and we'll turn the light switch of our rangatiratanga back on and that will be justice. We've come too far now. Um, And I don't mean we've come too far to go back, but we are going in a direction, and I think we can go forward in a direction that's more just if we stop and listen to each other more genuinely. Uh, What I mean about the whole, it can't always be on non-Māori terms, the pace of this or the comfort level, is that sometimes we have to have the courage to be uncomfortable. Hmm. And so that's why, you know, 
when we started this conversation, I said to you, you know, did you clock the ripple around the room and you talked about the celebrations? Really, I mean, our intent with Tuia here was to create space for exactly these kinds of conversations. And it's not to say that they all need to take place in public. In fact, most of the, some of the most valuable conversations are happening around kitchen tables with our kids and within our households and around tables at the par and tables down at the pub and wherever people gather. I mean, this is the, this, these are the important building blocks of change as we ask ourselves, what is the future? What is the legacy that we leave for our mokopuna? What is the future that we are building around this idea of the mana of people, right? Whoever we are, wherever we come from, the, the mana of people. And so that is the antidote to racism. That is the antidote to racist assumptions. But the real question for New Zealand is, are we ready to really hold ourselves accountable to a much higher standard of respect for humanity? And I think it's a fair and valid question to ask ourselves. Mm, mm. And those conversations that you prompted with Tuia 250 and all the, all, all the commemorations, should we say commemorations? And I, I, I must admit I've tried a, a number of times to stop myself from saying celebrations. And when I'm thinking about something else, it'll pop out. It's interesting, isn't it? Um, that, that commemoration perhaps is a better word or perhaps it's still not the right word. Well, the thing is we're talking about a moment in time that was experienced entirely differently by two groups of people. And many of us in this room whakapapa to both groups, right? So we've, we carry that conflict with us within our very DNA. It's a horrible place to be. So as we begin to reconcile ourselves with all of the versions of events that took place and begin to understand the complexity of our origins as a nation, it's only then that we can begin to think about the future. If we keep deluding ourselves with the myth of discovery and the idea that somehow Māori people are somehow less human than European people, then we really are going backwards in time. You're listening to RNZ and an edition of Awkward Conversations about Race and Identity. Today I'm discussing colonisation and the historical doctrine of discovery with Dale Takitimu and Glenis Philip-Barbara. We're gathered in front of an audience in the distinctive Smash Palace Bar and Music Venue in Gisborne and speaking as the Tuya 250 Kituranga commemoration of the first contact between Māori and Pākehā draws to a close. In the chair, I'm Alex Perite. This idea of um, coming to a much deeper understanding of place is one way that we can begin to think about where we, where we are, the land we stand on, its own history, its own connections, the people who connect here, the people who have lived here, the people who have you know, served here. I mean, there's, there's such a myriad of ways for us to have a much more nuanced and in-depth relationship with the very communities that we live amongst. But for us as Māori, we have whakapapa that, for people like us, take us back to the beginnings of time as we know it. I mean, I'm a 47th generation descendant of Māori. You know, the fellow who fished up the Ika Māori. I mean, that's, that's the beginnings of a, of a corridor about the beginnings of time from a cultural perspective. I mean, for my children and grandchildren to understand that side of themselves is hugely important to me, as is my determination that they understand all of the drivers that pushed my Scottish family out of Forfa and out of 
County Angus and down into Liverpool and over here? What did they come here looking for? What were they hoping to achieve? What were the ideas that they brought with them? I mean, my curious question within my own family is, you know, did my Pahia relatives come here with the same superiority complex that's caused me such huge grief over my lifetime as a Māori woman? I mean, I know the answer to that question, you know, because I live in my Pahia family as much as I live in my Māori family. So it's that, it's those tiny conversations um, over the course of one's lifetime we need to be committed to those and we need to be brave enough to actually challenge our own assumptions about how we think the world works. And I think it would be dangerous and we should caution against thinking the inclusion in a state curriculum will be the panacea for all of this and it will solve our problems and if we just let that run its course for a couple of generations, this will magically rebalance. Uh, There's some... Uh, reservations uh, that a state curriculum or a state design curriculum that also has a vested interest in maintaining the fiction that we're trying to dismantle is actually going to deliver uh, what we need it to deliver. We can sit here and talk about, you know, the the massive lineups of executions in the King Country, point blank range hundreds of people slaughtered. We can talk about the, the scorched earth policy in Tūrawera, which basically people were starved off their ancestral land in a way to conquer that for a national park. You know, we can talk about those things and we can give those anecdotes through a history or social studies curriculum at school, but actually our ability to teach ourselves and our children about the basic sanctity of every single human being that they come in contact with and the legitimacy of their history and their worldview does not rely on the state. That's a decision each and every one of us can make before we walk out the door tonight. For my people, my family and my iwi, some of this is about just getting the basic acceptance that we have a legitimate place within the family of nations. That should really not be a controversial idea. That's not actually asking the world of anybody, but it's giving me back the space to reclaim my world and my self-determination. And that is not something we need to have law reform for. We don't need Jacinda to tell us if she supports it or not. We don't need that. We just need to make a decision. And in fact, funnily enough, these are the Christian values... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that the great Christian doctrine of discovery was talking about love thy neighbor, like recognize each other's right to be here. How can we incorporate or integrate Maori systems of decision making in our current structure? You did mention before, Dale, that we have to move forward together. We've got to accept what the existing systems are. I'm thinking about even the practice of Rahui. Um, and there's, I think there's been a recent one here in um, Taraifiti about um, use of the waterways, um, and I've seen it in Auckland, perhaps in a clunkier way in, in recent years, protecting the Waitakere Ranges from Kauri dieback, uh, a, a, a better effort um, even more recently in Matapori, looking after the mermaid pools, Te Waiote Tanifa, um, where the council worked very hand-in-hand with local iwi and hapu, how can we learn from those better experiences of giving giving space and respect in a legal and juridical sense 
to those Māori systems of power and decision-making over land and other things? Um, well, first of all, I'd say let's recognise the limitations of that because that all exists in what we call a kāwanatanga system, right? It's not our system. It's an imposed system that's come here. It's replaced and imposed on top of our pre-existing inherent self-government, a new system, right? So we can colour that up and we can make that a bit better than it was before and a little less harmful. And that's what I've been talking about in the Rahui space a little bit, partly because as a negotiator for my iwi sitting opposite Crown Law and Ministry of Fisheries and the like, I said and wanted negotiated for our iwi the ability to put Rahui on our coastal marine area. And they said to us, uh, for the preservation of fish stocks and environmental matters, yes, but for spiritual matters, no. We can't put spiritual matters into law. And I said, you do every day. You've got Easter holidays, you've got Christmas holidays. Your spirituality makes it into law every other day of the week. Mine, however, does not. So we pushed back on it. What I found interesting is that the second pushback to that was mainstream New Zealand will not tolerate it. And what I had found, in fact, is that the people moved before the politicians did. So quite often in tight because there's been a lot of cross-pollen, uh, uh, I guess, um, <laughs> integration, I think, is the word we're using. Uh, we've, we've been together for a long time. And so um, uh, here, when the hapu or the iwi say there's a rahui from this point to that point, the general populace largely respects that because they understand it. The politicians in Wellington don't know anything about it. And if someone from, uh, from the media went and asked them, is it legally binding, tomorrow there'll be a headline to say, ah, oh, we're not legally binding, and everyone will be like, oh, whatever, we're still not going there. Yeah. Because Nazi Oneone said don't, or Hawiti said don't. So the, the people and the, and the population, I think, have a lot greater tolerance than the politicians give them um, credit for. But that's within the kāwanatanga system. That's different from the types of reform and the types of recognition for our rangatiratanga, which sits separate and is part of our inherent set of rights as Indigenous people. They are protected as a minimum set of standards by the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, which say, as the very outset, Indigenous peoples have the right to self-determination. We actually needed that in a 2007 declaration in the United Nations because despite the fact that Article 1 of the United Nations Charter says all peoples have the right to self-determination, it was decided by the colonising governments that didn't apply to Indigenous peoples. We needed our own special clause that we had to fight for another 100-odd years to get. Um, so we have that right, and we want to be able to express it, and we want to be able to live in accordance with our worldview. And we have a legitimate right, like every other person on this planet, to do that. Of course, we, like other people, would need to do that in a way that doesn't cause harm to other people or impinge on other people's rights, but there still is a way to do that in a way that's not as scary as people make out it is. And I think we should explore it. It's, I mean, it's real simple. I see it um, on the daily, actually. You know, when as a non-Māori person you go along to a marae and you attend a tangihanga, for example, you know, you give yourself over to the tikanga of that marae and you lean into the leadership of the people who are in charge in that space at that time, you know, and you do your best to show respect for that system of tikanga operating in that particular setting. 
And whether you understand it or not, when you agree to give yourself over uh, to a situation like that, that's one tiny weeny example of what you're talking about. I mean, frankly, it's an exercise in trust. Do we trust the leadership of iwi? I mean, that was a question that we put to our community around the organisation of the pōhiri for the Polynesian voyaging flotilla that arrived here on the 5th of October. We asked our community, do we trust iwi to lead this out? And the resounding response was, well, of course we do. We don't know how to run a pōhiri. I mean, it's a tiny example. It doesn't go nearly far enough. But, you know, 7,500 people turned out on that day to stand behind the iwi of Tsuranga while they extended a traditional welcome to their Polynesian whānau. I mean, it was an incredible experience. But that's what I mean, you know, actually giving our community an option to lean into the leadership that comes from the ao Māori. I think we're more up for it than we give ourselves credit for. Time now for audience questions in this edition of Awkward Conversations, recorded in Gisborne. Kia ora everybody, uh, Meredith Akota-Brown. I've felt in my lifetime, if I just simply assimilate and embrace a Pākehā world, I will succeed. And I see that even now in my current roles I carry in this community. If I just play the game, I will succeed. So if Māori, um, should we be saying to our Māori, to our rangatai young people, um, resist that assimilation because that's what's making you unwell because you're trying to be something you're not or you're, you're not wholly that. I think it is possible, many of us do it all the time, to hold yourself and still um, you know, respond to a context that you find yourself in that's different to your own cultural context. You know, and for those of us carrying um, many lines of whakapapa and genealogy from all over the world, we're constantly having to reconcile ourselves with who we are in this context. You know, consistency is everything. People come to understand who we are by the way that we behave. That, that's my experience anyway. So being true to ourselves. Definitely there is a continued profiling of, of the good Māori and the casting of the good Māori versus the radical Māori, the flag-waving, protesting Māori, uh, the one on the end of the megaphone, though, that sort of thing. But uh, interestingly enough, the victories that New Zealand as a nation claim internationally for our apparently advanced race relations have all been brought about by protest and by Māori standing up and holding government to account. The revitalisation of Te Reo didn't happen out of somebody's goodwill. We dragged them all the way to the Privy Council and even then they didn't want to agree that Te Reo was a taonga that they had interrupted and interfered with. Uh, uh, the treaty settlement process, the tribunal flawed as it is, those things have all come about out of the voice of protest. But we are very quick, New Zealand, to claim the moral high ground after the fact. Springbok tour. Yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, we stood up against apartheid. No, we didn't. <laughs> 80-odd people stood up against apartheid, or sometimes 200-odd, stormed the, the fields. They yeah, got bashed for it, got imprisoned for it, some people. And then years after, when the history book says that was a good thing to do, New Zealand's like, we stood up for that. We stood up for that. No, no, mainstream New Zealand didn't stand up for that. Mainstream New Zealand didn't stand up against uh, a nuclear 
It, that was, again, small group of, you know, the radicals, the hippies, everyone, people want to cast them out as, as, as the naughty people, the delinquents in society. I think we have to be very careful about that because history has shown us the, the very short history that we have because we, we really, um, in terms of the post-treaty world, because we had a, obviously a history that exists a long time before that, but uh, that very short history, the most progressive moves we've claimed have actually been the voices of dissent in the moment. But that gives great hope too, doesn't it, in the positive spin, if you like, on the, the power of minority. For those of us that are still the dissenters and in the minority, it does. It encourages us. It does. Um, and I'm not sure it's supposed to, but it does. It does. Uh, but there's a tiredness in that, in having to have the same fight generation after generation. I'd actually like my kids to go out and enjoy their Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> at the beach with their kids, you know, mm-hmm. uh, rather than having to come on a protest with mum because yet again somebody's trying to do some deep sea oil drilling in, in the backyard of the Tairawhiti. Um, Those sorts of things absorb a massive amount of our energy and we're still cast as the radicals and the activists were doing it and we're still probably going to do it, you're right, but... Um, I think mainstream New Zealand could do well to dig underneath that a little bit and say, hey, why? What are they going on about? Why? Why? What's driving them to give up their free time and go out and make a stand for something? And there'll normally be an injustice sitting underneath it that people want addressed. I'd like to thank my guests Dale Takitimu and Glenis Philip-Barbara for this edition of Awkward Conversations focusing on colonisation and the doctrine of discovery. We've been talking at Smash Palace in Gisborne at an event staged by the Taha Trust. For RNZ, I'm Alex Perrottet.